Atena kota kato, no mai ratato kite manatu tanga kite nei kite nei hui e pana kite tangata fenua. Noreira tene te mihiatu kia koe te rangatira aroha no mai haramai kite nei otato hui te tahi o ngā wahine tōa no te rarawa no ngā puhi e mihi ana hau ki e tahi o ngā maunga ki ngā maunga neke neke no reira tēnā tātou tēnā tātou katoa ngā hua mahi me e tahi o ngā tari o te kāwanatanga no reira mihi mai rā ki a tātou katoa i tēnei wā ka huri a hau Ki a koe aroha, nau mai hoki mai, ki te manatū taonga, and thank you. Thank you, everybody, for coming along in abundance this afternoon to hear from Aroha Harris, who is one of the co-authors of Tangata Whenua, about this marvellous text that, fortunately, for a number of us, filled more than handsomely filled our Christmas stockings before the end of last year before it was launched. Um, a special recognition, of course, to your co-authors, Aroha, to uh, the late Judith Binney and Ethel McPherson, who was, uh, wasn't able to be with us in that, uh, this afternoon. And thank you, everybody, for coming along. Um, for those of you that have read um, Tangata Whenua, it's a marvellous uh, contribution to New Zealand's uh, New Zealand's history, uh, and in particular, the not just the aspects that Aroha uh, covered in terms of developing that bigger conversation uh, around iwi narratives. It, it is, is also a very rich text about the wider kind of engagement, if you like, between that that kind of at, at that community at the community level a discussion between what emerged particularly from my point of view and in, in my lifetime in the late uh, 1950s with the shift I guess in the Māori Pākehā relationship prior to that um, the shift of Māori people in particular to the uh, to the cities and to the dwellings how that impacted on New Zealand society in general and with it also, the context prior to that of the end of World War II, um, those kind of relationships that formed really in our own minds and that our own version uh, and that of history, to have that now recorded so richly visually as well as the narratives and that, that under, underpin that. I'm really, really uh, appreciative of your time. Aro has one of her many uh, portfolios. Uh, of interest is, of course, she's a member of the Waitangi Tribunal and is um, sort of knee-deep, head-high in uh, um, masterminding the writing of the Rohe Pōtai report at the moment. Uh, amongst her other um, other hats that she wears, she's also uh, on loan from Auckland University, uh, where she uh, is a senior lecturer in history. Uh, and this publication is one of a number of publications that she has worked on over an, a number of years. She's also been a contributor uh, to uh, conceptualising 
the Ministry's uh, Treaty Settlement Histories Project, which is in commission at the moment, in development at the moment. So thank you, Aroha, for um, being able to come along this afternoon, but really the, the great contribution that you've made and are making to New Zealand history. I'm very pleased that uh, James uh, Bellich, when we were asking, uh, inviting Aroha to come and um, kick off the Treaty Settlement Histories Project, I think gave a recommendation that um, in not only in Māori history, but as Māori history as a contribution uh, to New Zealand history, uh, he could find no other finer historian than Aroha. So with that, I um, welcome you here this afternoon, Aroha, and look forward to your presentation. Uh, Neil Basil, tēnā kōrua, uh, te manatū taonga, tēnā koutou, uh, koutou mākua hui mai nei, uh, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou. Kia ora. So a couple of acknowledgements first. I'm, I'm quite conscious of uh, Judith Binney and her contribution to this work and um, not just as an author but really as a someone who conceptualised the project uh, alongside Ethel Anderson and I and I'm particularly um, mindful of her today because of her because her husband Sebastian Black passed away earlier this week um, and he was a great supporter of the book um, not just because it was one of Judith's projects but actually because he thought it was a good project um, and I bring apologies from Ethel Anderson as well, who was supposed to, we were supposed to be doing a double act today, and he had other um, iwi engagements. And if you work with iwi, you know that they always come first. <laughs> um, and I want, yeah, I want to acknowledge Judith and Ethel um, as collaborators on this project. I had thought that I could try and uh, do a bit of an overview of Athol's part of the book and decided against that. Um, I just don't have his expertise and it's quite, I find a lot of the material technical. He swears that it isn't. I think the two things I would say about his work, um, well his section of the book is that uh, yes we probably came from somewhere in South China um, into the Pacific and eventually down here into Aotearoa um, where we became uh, first various iwi and then later on Māori. Um, and what I find fascinating about Athol's work is the way that he's been able to blend archaeology and iwi traditions and also he's done some fine work with um, whakapapa genetics and languages to show the ways that iwi traditions actually marry up quite nicely with archaeology, which I think is a fairly uh, um, fresh way of thinking about the marriage of science and tradition in that way. So what I thought I would do today um, is actually take some time. I'd, I'd quite like to leave... Um, sort of half the time for questions but 
I wanted to take some time to talk about the process of this book because I think the way that we approach the project is as important as what we've managed to deliver ultimately. And it's also, in talking about the process, I get to acknowledge the many hands that have had a part in this work. Um, and I see a pair of those hands up the back there. Kia ora, Paul. Uh, Paul Diamond was, we had a range of advisors on the project and Paul was one of our um, readers and advisors for the 20th century. So what do I mean by how we approach this book? Well, I think, first of all, um, we had a commitment amongst uh, Judith Athol and myself and our publisher Bridget Williams to really debate and talk about what we thought we were doing with this project, what kind of book we wanted to produce, what kind of histories we wanted it to portray, um, how we wanted the images to work. So it's, all, it's almost to me like we had two, two projects that came together. Um, so the, the text, which we wanted to be scholarly and up-to-date, and the images, which was an enormous project in itself. The interesting thing about images in New Zealand is that um, the images from a lot of our uh, uh, magazines and newspapers are in fact held overseas sometimes, because they've all been digitised and now some big corporate overseas owns them, and so that makes access to them quite interesting and expensive. Um, but also we found that uh, there's, there's an enormous number of 20th century images available, but few of them have been actually published. And so we have at Bridget Williams this massive cache of about 12,000 images, um, which we gathered because we assembled a team of uh, young Māori scholars and researchers throughout the country and they uh, really um, poured over collections at regional museums, regional newspapers as well as the big um, national museums like Auckland Museum and Te Papa. So, and that was, was partly we wanted to get a sense of what was out there. It was a slightly ridiculous exercise because you can ne you're never going to be able to publish 12,000 images in a book. Um, But I think it gave us a sense of what's out there and it spoke to one of the commitments we had as authors which was although we wanted to write a big um, history which would have broad strokes we actually also wanted to make sure that we touched on communities and local people and local events as well and that was, for me that's what you have to do if you're writing a Māori history you've got to be connecting um, locally connecting with people, connecting with communities connecting with uh, um, past and present, uh, connecting across generations, connecting current um, generations with ancestors. Uh, to me, you've got to do that if you're doing a Māori history. But if you're doing a big history, a general history, you've got to have the broad strokes as well. And um, that, was to, that was sort of one of our guiding principles which we wanted to portray in the images as well as in the text. We also wanted the images to... Um, have their own narrative, if you like. We kept talking about this visual narrative, um, and that's why we put the work into first sourcing all the different images and then trying to work out how to 
you know, organise them in the book. We wanted them to be able to have their own individual stories, but also to be able to read, be read across the book, um, which meant many hours of pacing around halls where we would lay out all the images and sort of walk up and down aisles of images while we worked out which ones were in, which ones were out, and um, what order, and should these ones be shuffled around, and uh, where do we put artworks, we want artworks, where are we going to put those... Um, you know, how, how do we represent all the many facets of, of Māori life through images? Um, and I think there, there's something kind of, um, sort of slightly mad about the book. In the age of the e-book, we decided, let's do this really big book. Let's have hundreds of images in it. Let's do a book that really works best off the page and not off an, a Kindle or a tablet. Um, does that sound like a good idea? <laughs> and it, for whatever reason, we did it anyway. Uh, I haven't seen Leanne today. She's not here today. Not one. So Leanne Tamaki, who, who works uh, part-time here in the ministry, was she let out our image research... And it was really through um, her experience with images and her connections into some of the uh, regional museums and, and different uh, Māori researchers around the country that uh, she kind of mustered the team that worked on the images and brought a very particular eye to um, what we were looking at. She's got a pretty phenomenal um, expertise around, you know, she knows the photographers and um, whose who's work and it should, you know, she thinks about the composition of individual images and so forth so she was a, a huge help and we also had some emerging uh, scholars like uh, Michael Stevens who's at the University of Otago Arden Loder, who's up here at Victoria University and they've written essays throughout the book as well so we have this um, what we were calling double page spreads in between chapters and you can have a sort of, you know, a nice short but uh, perhaps deeper essay on something like rugby, uh, something like uh, te reo Māori, carving. So it's, a, it's been a, in some ways a community exercise. Um, and from my point of view, I, I didn't really think much of gathering people around the project in that way and having various advisors and readers throughout, um, having uh, a team of researchers doing gap-filling research and helping with the images. But I've been told that actually that's not how a lot of people work. So it's interesting to me because I think if, uh, and perhaps this is more an academic thing, but I think perhaps if people have been paying attention to what Māori scholars and Indigenous scholars have been saying about um, pr pr research production and history writing, it wouldn't have been such a surprise that we would assemble a, a, a community of people around the project. Um, and I say that knowing that in the discipline of history we tend to be um, uh, operators, lone wolves to a large extent. We have our individual offices where we do our individual projects and uh, you know we write by ourselves, we research by ourselves, but uh, I'm not certain it has to be that way. Um, okay, so let me 
move on and uh, just kind of give a bit of a historical arc. And I'll just let the images run through. I might, um, depending on how the time goes, when I get to the end of this, this sort of the themes that I want to run through, um, I might see what's on the screen and if I have something to say about it. So I'm mostly going to focus on um, the period from 1920 to uh, the present, which is uh, the period that I worked most on, um, and just go through what I think are some of the key themes. So I think that that period initially from the 1920s is uh, a period of transition. So you get these very vibrant Māori communities um, following the trauma of the First World War. But they sit, to me, uneasily against very telling social and economic differences. Um, so Māori standards of living really languished well below the standards of living of Pākehā people. And Māori communities operated largely outside the mainstream economic and political systems and often in impoverished circumstances. So it's a, it's a, and I think this is one of the things that comes through the book, you get this kind of energy and vibrancy um, within communities, but also when you compare them, Māori communities with Pākehā communities, you get this uh, very kind of um, poor living conditions aspect about Māori life. Now some of the issues that we tend historically to assign to the 19th century, particularly the um, persistent transfer of Māori land, and we should include their wealth and resources out of Māori hands <coughs> and into the hands of Pākehā settlers, usually via the government. Um, that's something that slowed down in the 20th century but didn't disappear. And it didn't slow... In some parts of the country it, was, it wasn't that slow actually, and I'm thinking now of um, Tirohi Porto, the king country, where they have enormous um, transfer of land and wealth out of um, Māori hands into the hands of Pākehā settlers into, well into the 20th century. And I think that's an important uh, point about New Zealand history generally, is that it doesn't happen evenly across the country, and particularly when we're talking about... Um, colonisation and Pākehā settlement. It's not, an, it's not an even process. It happens differently at different times in different parts of the country. You also in the early 20th century have the leadership of politicians like Apirana Ngata and others who have a very uh, Māori community development focus. Uh, for Ngata, he's uh, probably more well known for his land development and farming projects, but also sports the arts and literature and health were big issues for Māori as well. Um, some of the specific concerns of the 19th century, for example, around land, um, land confiscations, inadequate protection of customary fisheries and other resources, you know, those, those are recorded very well in the 19th century and they remained relevant right through to the, into the 20th century. Um, throughout the 1920s, you get uh, Ngaitahu, negotiating over its um, land alienation issues in the South Island, the, the Rotorua, um, Te Arawa Lakes and so forth. And these of course are the topics of um, tribunal inquiries even in the present. 
uh, one of the um, well I would I would argue the most dominant frame in terms of Māori policy um, through the starting in the 19th century and pushing through the 20th century was assimilation. So the idea that Māori could be socially, culturally and politically absorbed into a so-called mainstream um, population. And that's an idea that really framed Māori policy, um, well you could argue right from the 1840s, certainly through the late 19th century, particularly after the wars, and certainly through the 20th century where it gets refashioned as integration in the post-war era. The difference supposedly between assimilation and integration um, in the post-war era era was that integration would tolerate a degree of Māori cultural distinction. And of course these were highly contested ideas. Um, Māori consistently organised as Māori, they organised around shared ideals, Um, they brought their own aspirations into play with Māori policy. even when policy was clearly about bringing Māori into line with New Zealand's so-called mainstream. Uh, One of the things that um, Māori in the 1950s and 60s brought to the attention of government was that for integration to work properly, you actually had to have an end to racism. So as long as there were um, discriminations that, for example, prohibited Māori from certain bars or barbers, Um, or divided cinemas along racial lines, as long as there was that kind of discrimination um, in society, as long as uh, Pākehā people didn't want Māori as neighbours or would write letters to the editor about how Māori are okay, but as as long as they don't marry my daughter, um, as long as that happened, you're not going to get successful integration. That was the argument that Māori put to government. Um, One of the official responses was, well, no, if you integrate properly, you'll find that the racism, the discrimination will just kind of magically disappear because you're properly integrated. So it's an interesting uh, moment I feel, and again it's kind of, you've got to balance out this um, very vibrant Māori activity, particularly if you think about the Māori Women's Welfare League, very active in the 1950s and 60s, Um, tribal committees very active, uh, quite a lot of marae building projects around the country, so very vibrant, active, energetic communities and but kind of facing off around issues of race, um, issues of long-standing historical grievances over land, fisheries, so forth. And I think that some of that, those early debates come to fruition um, from the late 1970s and through the 1980s, um, and you get a period where Māori aspirations and views of the world become more influential uh, in policy development You get a period of Māori community initiatives in health and education, employment and justice. And it 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 takes an interesting turn. I can hear some of my friends in my ear saying, don't say that. (laughs) But I think it takes some of the the work that's done in the 1980s takes an interesting turn in the 90s when the government starts restructuring and Māori are actually reasonably well positioned to start picking up um, contracts to you know, provide services to their people themselves. Devolution. So 1980s um, idea that really bears fruit in the 1990s. I'm, I'm on the minor side of the ledger, it, 
it happens at a time that the government is also withdrawing resources from a lot of its pro- programs. So, you know, yes, Māori get to service their own communities, but at a time when resources are being pulled out from the very services that Māori want to provide. So, um, And, of course, more recently, um, that kind of movement of pushing Māori aspirations onto the uh, public policy agenda has merged with arrangements that are coming out of the settlements process. So, for example, co-management of um, conservation lands, which is fairly common around the country now. Um, things that Māori get to negotiate uh, when they settle their claims, and folks here at Ministry for Culture and Heritage will know about that. So, for me, throughout the whole of this history, um, Māori, I think, did what they could to nurture Māori ways of doing and being. They Māori regenerated carving and weaving traditions, saved te reo Māori from extinction, uh, consistently achieved in sports, music, literature, the arts, um, armed services. I think the accolades for Māori could go on endlessly. And to me, underpinning these um, accolades or achievements has been a very strong an ever-changing sense of identity and a Māori desire to organise and cooperate together as Māori. And I just want to pause there for a minute because I do think identity is a theme that runs through the whole of the book, right from, um, you know, from Athol's section, which takes us back, I always forget if it's 3,000 or 5,000 years, uh, but, you know, identity is an issue even when people are building their communities, when they start associating with the land here, and naming and claiming places and uh, marking out territories. It's, it's often about identity, um, often about mana. And to have group identity and have group mana, you really have to organise and cooperate together as Māori or as the particular iwi that you belong to. So it's a very um, persistent thing throughout the whole of the book, but it shifts and changes and shifts and changes, and I would say is still shifting and changing now. Um, I'm, I'm reluctant to say that this is a simple history of recovery and revival following the trauma of colonisation. Um, I think that's we deny ourselves a more sophisticated and more interesting and more um, complex history if we opt for a, a simple arc like that. And also... Um, even just thinking about the present time where we have probably the most educated uh, Māori generation ever, or actually it might be the most educated New Zealand edu- uh, generation ever anyway, um, where, we ha- where health um, statistics have improved and you know we can show all these ways that um, improvement and good health and well-being are manifest in Māori society. But also, uh, Māori have suffered the debilitating effects of things like restructuring in the 1980s. So the workforces that suffered the most from those um, restructuring, for example, of um, forestry and freezing works and so forth, Māori families had relied on those uh, workplaces intergenerationally. So when, when that restructuring hit, it really hit sometimes three generations in a family at a time. 
Um, and the statistics, of course, today remind us that Māori still live with relative uh, poverty, sorry, relative poverty, and uh, still have poor performance in a range of indicators, including health, housing, employment, um, education. So it's a kind of marginalisation um, as that Māori have experienced uh, as a result of colonisation. So we get it's a multi-layered history, I think. We have a whole lot of positive, energetic things happening and um, a lot of work also yet to be done.